This evening, uh, the talk is called The Solar Buddha, which is the title of this uh, retreat. Um, it was, um, it's, a, it's, it's a title I gave uh, when I was asked to give a write-up for this program. And at the time, it was the working title of my book. So I assumed that a book would be published at this time called The Solar Buddha, and that never happened because my editor thought it was a lousy title. <laughs> and my editor, being all-knowing and perfect, was, of course, right. But it is nonetheless an idea that I think has... Um, uh, is very helpful in trying to get a clearer sense of who this man Gautama was. So when we talk of early Buddhism, to me there are two prongs to this archaeology, this digging back into the past. One is the prong of recovering the humanity of this man called Gautama, and the other is the prong of recovering those teachings that he gave during his lifetime, as far as we can ascertain, that were distinctive and original to him and were not derived from the Indian culture of his time, which I would consider to be the early Dharma. So this evening I'm going to be looking at both um, and showing how they somehow interweave and overlap one with the other. Again, the, um, a, a lot of this is derived from uh, scholarly uh, studies um, that in this particular case from the work of a, 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 a Dutch scholar working in Switzerland called Johannes Bronckhorst who's published two books um, rather you know, dense academic books. Uh, one is called the Greater Magadha, but the one that I'm more interested in is called uh, Buddhism in the Shadow of Brahmanism. Buddhism in the Shadow of Brahmanism. Now, what Bronckhorst uh, maintains, and uh, this is not entirely you know, his own idea. This has been an idea that's been current for some time in scholarly circles, um, has to do with um, something that has always puzzled um, scholars of Buddhism. Namely, why is the Buddhist teaching, uh, in some respects, uh, so different from what we find in Hinduism and Jainism? Uh, what is it about this teaching that uh, uh, makes it somehow stand out um, as, you know, having certain commonalities with those other traditions, but what accounts for its uh, distinctiveness? And the argument is that the Buddha, the person we came to know as the Buddha, um, did not grow up in a part of India that had already been Brahmanized. In other words, um, what Bronckhorst argues in quite some detail 
is that uh, according both to Buddhist and also to Brahminic texts, um, uh, early Brahminic texts, the eastern part of the Gangetic Basin um, was an area of the Buddha's time in which Brahmanism had not yet taken root. In other words, in this part of India, the eastern part, which is where the Buddha uh, was born and where he taught, um, there was no um, caste system. The four castes were not yet established as a normative uh, social structure. There was um, therefore um, not uh, a society governed by the, um, the, uh, the traditions of the Brahmin priests. It also meant that there was no um, belief in a creator god and no um, belief in the existence of a permanent self, Atman. And what this uh, then leads to is the upsetting of another apple cart, namely the idea that the Buddha's teaching was based upon a rejection of Brahmanism or Hinduism, that he rejected the caste system, he rejected uh, belief in a creator god, he rejected the belief in an eternal soul, and he came up with something newer and better. Well, that is highly questionable. And uh, there's no real evidence when you look at particularly the descriptions of his homeland, of Kapilavatu and Sakya, uh, that, there were, that it was a society of four castes. In fact, only two are mentioned. Uh, those of the Katya, uh, the, 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 the warriors or the ruling class, and the Gahapati, the householders. That seems to be the way that Sakya was organized socially. Uh, you just had those who belonged to the, the nobility, let's say, those who um, were involved in running the affairs of the local community as a Sangha. Again, that's the term he later uses for his community. Uh, there was no monarch. Uh, there were no Brahmin priests uh, you know, determining how society was organized. And he would not have been educated by such priests and raised as a member of the warrior caste in the Brahmanic sense of that word. So he didn't react against uh, Hinduism. Uh, when Bronkhorst uses this expression, Buddhism in the shadow of Brahmanism, um, he points out how quite it seems that quite early on in the development of Buddhism, the Buddhists began to believe the Brahmins' own propaganda. When Brahmanism did dominate, did come to dominate that part of India, uh, the Brahmins also brought with it this myth that since time immemorial, India had been the preserve of the Brahmins. Uh, this was, again, propaganda, basically, but the Buddhists and the Jains began to believe it too. So they too presented their teaching as a rejection of Brahmanism. They got, uh, Bronkhorst has a wonderful phrase. He says, the Brahmins uh, came to colonize the past. <laughs> so, okay, let's assume that this is the case. 
a number of people have objected to certain elements of Bronckhorst's thesis, like most or like many academic uh, theses, uh, you know, you push your case uh, so hard that you sometimes modify the facts to suit your thesis. And I think Bronckhorst goes a bit over the top in some areas. But um, he doesn't um, argue that there were no Brahmins around. There were. But the Brahmin, there were wandering Brahmin <coughs> priests uh, in India at this period, in eastern the eastern part of the Gangetic Basin at this period, but they were basically priests for hire. Local rulers might hire them to do a ritual or a sacrifice or a ceremony, um, but they were not yet um, established in the way they later came to be, as kind of the, you know, the, the dominant um, uh, form of uh, religious uh, and social practice and belief. So if... Um, the Buddha did not grow up in a Brahminic society. What kind of society did he grow up in? There is some evidence to show that he grew up in a society that was, like many of the agrarian communities the world over, focused upon the worship of the sun. The sun uh, was, for farmers, uh, simply the source of all of life. It's what enabled the, uh, the, the, the crops to, to grow. It's what enabled uh, human beings to live. It provided warmth. It provided light. Uh, there was a sense of being completely dependent on it. The Sakyans, the tribe, clan to which the Buddha belonged, uh, saw themselves or had a myth that they were actually descended from the sun that they, a bit like the Japanese, believed that the emperors descended from the sun. The Sakyans thought likewise. And I suspect this was a fairly typical belief of, of those who worshipped this sun and saw them, their particular family or clan having a, a, a privileged relationship to the sun that gave them authority and status in their world. Likewise... Um, one of the earliest texts we have in the Sutta Nipata, which I've mentioned before, recounts uh, the Buddha's departure from home. And after leaving home, he heads south. He arrives at the city of Rajagaha, uh, Rajgir. And he there meets the king of Magadha, a man called Bimbisara, and Bimbisara is very impressed with the bearing of this young man and uh, approaches him and asks him who he is. And he says, um, I come from uh, a clan of the of people called the Sakyans who live on the hills of the Himavant or the Himalaya um, who are citizens of Kosala, which is interesting. Kosala was the monarchy to the west of Sakya that at the time of the Buddha's birth already included Sakya as a vassal state. So he considered himself not as a citizen of Sakya, but as a citizen of Kosala, uh, a subject of the king of Kosala. And then he continues, and I belong to the Aditya Gota. I belong to the lineage of the son. Uh, lineage uh, is different from family. 
It's a sense um, of uh, where your origins lie in a deeper, perhaps even slightly mystical sense. And for the Sakyans, they felt themselves to be descendants of, in the lineage of the sun. And throughout his uh, teaching career, he, um, caught, he, he was known as the Adicha Mita, which means the friend of the sun, Adicha Bandhu, which means the kinsman of the sun. And uh, he never, in other words, rejected this association with the sun. It wasn't something he had to reject in order to come up with something new. What he did, I think, was to take the image of the sun, as, which would have been the object of a kind of animistic worship, and he turned it symbolically into something else. He universalized the sun from a physical orb in the sky into a metaphor for nirvana. There are a couple of passages that suggest that he saw nirvana itself as uh, being like the sun. Um, uh, he said that uh, to one of... Um, uh, he described how uh, his cousin Mahanama was one who would have a good death. And in the same way that the, um, a tree that leans towards the east would naturally fall towards the east... So a person whose life is dedicated to the Dharma will incline towards nirvana. The east, of course, is the direction of the rising sun. When you look at the descriptions they give at the beginning of many of the suttas, and the Buddha goes into uh, an assembly hall or wherever it is, he will seat facing the east, facing the sun. Um, and lots of little details like this uh, suggest that the sun uh, was still a very potent image for him, but one that he had symbolically universalized by identifying it with uh, nirvana itself. And likewise, when he speaks of the good friend, the Kalyanamita, um, he compares the Kalyanamita, the good friend or the the spiritual friend, the teacher, if you wish. He says, the good friend is like the rising sun. And just as the sun at dawn sheds light and illuminates the landscape, so too does the good friend illuminate uh, the Eightfold Path. In other words, what the, the, the task of the, of the good friend is to show you uh, the way to enter the stream of the Eightfold Path. So again, the good friend is also compared to the sun. The Buddha associates himself with the sun. I have found um, only one example of this, and that's in the British Museum. There is a, a, a bas-relief made of clay, about this big, um, and it's a pre-iconic image of the Buddha, it's uh, a throne, a Bodhi tree behind it, a couple of figures who seem to serve as sort of protectors or guardian figures. And on the throne is a stylized depiction of the sun. 
usually the Buddha is depicted either as an empty throne or just the Bodhi tree or footprints. But in at least this one example, he's actually depicted as the sun. Now, when the Greeks, uh, colonists who lived in northwest India, in what is now Pakistan and Afghanistan, uh, when they converted to Buddhism after the collapse of the Greek uh, power in Europe and were left somehow adrift in uh, northeast India, uh, they tended to convert to Buddhism. And on becoming Buddhists, they sought to represent this figure, their new uh, focus of their religion. Um, and they chose to represent him in the form of the Greek god Apollo. Now, Apollo uh, is also symbolized as the sun and also symbolizes uh, healing. It's the god of healing, the god of the sun. So we find you know, lots of uh, pointers towards this solar image. Now, if we, um, if we think about this for a while, um, what does the sun symbolize? What, it, what would it be like to live a solar life? The sun is a symbol of both heat and light simultaneously. And in that sense, it suggests a, uh, a unification of the light of wisdom, the light of uh, illumination, with the warmth of compassion, the warmth of love. It's a very, um, it's a very life-affirming image. Uh, curiously, as Buddhism developed in India, it tended to shift the symbolic center away from the sun to the moon. Uh, Nirvana then becomes associated more with the, the cool, detached light of the moon. There was a kind of a lunar turn in some way. But in, these early, um, uh, in, in this early iconography, in this early, uh, uh, these early stories... Um, we find the focus is very much on the sun. So if we imagine what it would be like to live like the sun, if the sun were an image of our own, uh, of our own practice, it would be also a metaphor of uh, giving oneself away. I mean, nowadays we understand this very clearly, that the sun is literally burning itself out in order to, well, not consciously in order to, but as a result of which life is made possible on earth. So for me, the sun is also a metaphor of generosity, um, of, um, of, of giving oneself away uh, to, the, to, to, to the world, um, which is somehow suggested in the idea of nirvana as the, uh, as, as, as the blowing out of fire. It's, you could take that not as a negation, but also as simply what happens when anything burns. Uh, it gives its heat away. It gives its light away. Now, quite independently of all of this, um, my uh, friend and uh, guru, uh, Don Cupid, the Christian theologian, has developed a whole theology of what he calls solar living. 
and um, where he sees the sun. Uh, he knew nothing about this Buddhist stuff at all um, until I told him. But this material came out long before um, uh, I was interested in looking at the Buddha in this way. And um, he likewise explains it very similarly. Uh, he sees that the, um, he, he advocates a kind of solar living, a life of, of selfless giving, which of course he sees in the Christian frame. But I feel here we have something very similar going on in early Buddhism as well. So that's the reason I was drawn to um, think of my book as a, a, a way of describing this solar living. And you'll find when you read the book that there are still occasional references uh, to this uh, image of the sun. I do give most of this uh, information also in the pages of the book. Another thing that would have been uh, entirely natural for um, an agrarian community or society uh, would be um, to experience life as given by, as, as, as dependent upon the heat of, and light of the sun, on the um, regular monsoon rains. We'll possibly come back to the role of rain and water. Um, which is also a very central image in early Buddhism. Uh, Mara, for example, is understood as the, the one who holds back the water uh, of the monsoon. And we talk of entering the stream, um, stream entry. There's a lot of water metaphors in Buddhism as well, early Buddhism as well. And all of this is suggestive of people who have not yet uh, become dwellers in cities. This was something that was just beginning at the Buddha's time. The first cities were built, and we know this now from archaeology, uh, in the century or so before the Buddha's birth. And the Buddha really lived in a time when society was shifting socially, economically, politically away from an agrarian way of life into a greater concentrations of population in the newly emergent urban centers. And many of his uh, disciples and supporters were bankers and merchants who lived in cities. He founded his main communities on the edges of these newly emergent cities. But at the same time, um, in seeking a new language to address the needs of this uh, emerging urban community, um, he drew upon uh, the experience of his culture, of his society, of Sakya, um, which utilized still primarily agrarian metaphors. Um, I would speculate, again, I don't have hard evidence for this, the one of the features of an agrarian experience would be the witnessing year after year of the seasons, of seeing, the, seeing life as cyclical. Uh, the, the, the first shoots of the plants arise in the spring, they come to fruition in the summer, they are harvested in the autumn, and then as winter approaches, the plants die back, uh, there is just the bare soil, and yet in the spring they shoot 
their shoots of green once more and the cycle begins again. And this, I feel, was probably the basis for the view of a world that um, included the idea of reincarnation and karma. Uh, my, my suspicion is that this is where that notion of cyclical existence, sangsara, the notion of, of reincarnation, being born, flourishing, dying, being born again, would have seemed entirely natural uh, to people living in such a world. And what happened, I think, was that the uh, doctrine of uh, rebirth and karma um, uh, became a, like the Buddha took the image of the sun and turned it into uh, a universal symbol for a particular way of life. Likewise, the agrarian cyclical understanding of uh, experience was translated into a grander scheme of uh, death and rebirth over many lifetimes, uh, not necessarily even all on this, uh, this earth, but perhaps elsewhere. And this became the, um, the foundation for what the Greeks would call uh, the, a cosmos, um, the Greeks had two words. They had chaos and cosmos. Uh, cosmos uh, uh, literally means order. Chaos is disorder, obviously. And cosmos means order, but order on a grander scale. In other words, human beings in search of meaning, as soon as there is the leisure, the opportunity to ask, you know, what does this all mean in the grander scheme of things, they seek to uh, understand their lives within a cosmos, within a world of which they are a relatively tiny little ephemeral part, but the meaning and the purpose of their lives is understood um, in this cosmic frame. So although you may not realize uh, your goals in this lifetime, you may suffer a premature death, uh, you may not achieve the enlightenment or the salvation that you seek in your religious practices. Uh, you nonetheless have a further opportunity when you get reborn in the next life and therefore you become part of a much greater existence than your short period here on earth. And likewise, the idea of uh, karma... Um, is in many ways an idea um, which provides a sense of justice. In other words, a person may do terribly evil things on this world. In this world, uh, may not seem to suffer any consequences from that, but after death, they will receive their um, the you know their punishment or their reward for their acts here on earth. Um, and I think similar theories have been advanced in the uh, development of the concepts of heaven and hell in the Judeo-Christian tradition as well. Um, but karma in India, I think, serves primarily as a, a form of natural justice. And this became you know, developed to a high degree of sophistication with different moral values 
attributed to different acts and thoughts and deeds that bore fruit in the future after death, uh, and your present existence being understood as the consequence of actions committed in a previous lifetime. So this provides the person with a sense of location um, in a in a world that in some ways is, 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 is incomprehensible in its vastness, in its complexity, and also in its seeming unfairness. So I think it entirely possible that this theory of karma and rebirth emerged out of that agrarian worldview. And we find it not only in India at this period, we find it also in Asia Minor, uh, Pythagoras believed in much the same sorts of things, Plato believed in rebirth, and although they didn't call it karma, they believed uh, also that our future lives were determined by the quality of our moral life here on earth. So in other words, um, uh, karma is not, or let's just stick to rebirth, Um, rebirth is not a a metaphysical doctrine that we can consider with cold, rational objectivity and uh, then come to a conclusion as to whether it's true or false. And often when these ideas are presented in the West, we fail to see how they operated within the worlds of ancient India and Greece um, where they were entirely um, self-evident They were just what people took completely for granted. What's striking in the Pali Canon, for example, is that, of course, the Buddha does use these metaphors of rebirth and karma and so on, uh, just as do the Upanishads, just as do the Jains. It's got nothing exclusively Buddhist about it. And... um, What's curious is that the Buddha never gives a discourse in which he, he has to explain this. He doesn't say, there is bhikkhu's reincarnation, and this is how it works. He never does that. And it's rather a weird omission, actually, that he never provides a mechanism for how this works, which one would expect him to do, because he was, after all, a very rigorous and clear-headed thinker who described in fine detail uh, elements of our uh, human experience, our psychological life. Um, He seems to couch a great deal of what he says in the rebirth uh, frame, and yet he doesn't uh, explain how it works. In fact, he goes... There are passages, uh, there's a passage in the Sangyuta, for example, where he says that uh, um, the idea that consciousness uh, could exist independently of the body and the feelings and perceptions uh, and the material world, the physical world of senses, he says this is impossible. The fact, the, and he actually says the idea that consciousness could be reborn, he said this is impossible. He rules consciousness out as being able to exist independently of the physical world um, of, of embodiment, which he sees it as being an integral part. So in some ways, his teaching actually undermines the very idea that there can be some privileged uh, bit 
of our experience that is capable of surviving physical death. We may have time later in the week to look at these ideas more closely. But his teaching, uh, his distinctive teaching, uh, actually doesn't fit very well with this at all, let alone the fact that um, uh, he doesn't posit a permanent self uh, that could be reborn. So the idea of what it is re that gets reborn uh, is not really uh, a deducible from the suttas. And what happened when Buddhism became another Indian religion, which is what it did, um, all the Buddhist schools had to invent a new terminology to explain how this worked. The Theravadins have this idea of the bhavanga citta, the rebirth consciousness. Um, the Tibetans, uh, or later Indian philosophy, had this idea of the Aliya Visnyana, the foundation consciousness. The Tibetans talk in Vajrayana terms of the, the union of subtle wind and mind that gets reborn. None of these ideas you find uh, even mentioned in the, Pali, in the Pali Suttas. So the Buddhist orthodoxies that had to somehow explain rebirth had to develop a language with which to do that. They couldn't do it with the language of the suttas. Again, I think we need to respect how this idea, these ideas, operated within the context of traditional Buddhist societies. Um, we've already touched on this, but another way of looking at it would be that the theory of rebirth karma provides um, explanations for what is otherwise inexplicable and unjust. And in this regard, it serves much the same purpose as the idea in Christian, traditional Christian societies, um, of the will of God. So let's imagine you have a Buddhist um, family, uh, uh, the, the mother gives birth to a child with, great, with, with deformity or some horrible suffering uh, who dies prematurely perhaps. And um, the way that's explained is because of what the child did in a previous life. Um, in a Christian situation um, of the same nature, it would be because it's the will of God. In other words, it's not something we can understand, but we have this explanatory uh, device, will of God, law of karma, that makes what is unintelligible, unbearable, it makes it somewhat intelligible and bearable. That, I think, was a very important function of this worldview. Nowadays, of course, we would... Uh, you know, if a child, for example, has born with Down syndrome or whatever it might be, spina bifida, um, we would understand this in terms of genetics. We would understand it in terms of maybe problems during the pregnancy. We'd seek to find an explanation that fitted with our, um, um, you know, our natural scientific understanding of the world. And also, we would then seek to try to find, to do some, find ways to do something about it to prevent it from occurring again. The problem with the karma theory, the God theory, is you're not going to be strongly, strongly motivated to seek out the causes of those disabilities because it's the will of God. 
or because it's the karma, it somehow forecloses the spirit of empirical investigation. And this, of course, is one of the features of the European Enlightenment and the, uh, the emergence of the naturalistic scientific view of the world. In other ways, um, rebirth becomes part of the, the economic system of those societies, becomes part of the political system in some cases. Um, the reason I think it's very difficult for traditional Buddhists to accept that rebirth may not actually be the way things work is because it would undermine a great deal of the, um, of the uh, financing of the monasteries. Uh, monasteries in Asia, particularly in East Asia, um, derive a great deal of their income from performing death ceremonies, which help the dead, the departed, onto a more favorable rebirth. Um, so it's kind of necessary to hold those beliefs in order to maintain a certain economic system. The monasteries also function um, as, a mean, as providing a means to come to terms with death, of coping with bereavement. This is all very much part of how the society works. I was particularly struck by this living in a Zen monastery in Korea. Um, you know, both in terms of how these, um, this, uh, you do seven weeks, 49 days every week, you do a death ceremony. And this is supposed to accord with the intermediate state um, where the soul passes from death to another rebirth. And whether or not one believes in the theory, it's a very effective way of handling bereavement. People come together once a week. They recollect the person who's departed. There is uh, a religious ritual, a ceremony, chanting. There's also a meal. It all has to do with the life of the community. So to object to it on the grounds that, you know, we can't find anything that gets reborn with a brain like we have now is kind of missing the point rather badly. In, the fu in future, these traditions may not survive because modern Koreans will be educated in, modern, in the Western kind of way um, and they may no longer be able to you know, maintain these beliefs, in which case those systems will break down. In Tibet, uh, you have the system of the tulku, the reincarnate lama, which again has to do very much with the continuity of the life of the monastic community and the communities that um, support and are nourished by those monastic institutions. The lamas are those who perpetuate the lineages and the traditions through successive incarnations. It's far more than just a belief. It's uh, a social, political, economic uh, function within the fabric of those social structures and societies uh, uh, in, 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 in their very heart, actually. So we now find ourselves in a um, very different cosmos. Um, and I think the problem for us is not so much that um, uh, uh, whether or not we believe in reincarnation, it's whether or not we are able to continue inhabiting the cosmos of traditional Buddhism. 
which includes the soteriology. Soteriology is a theological term. It means the way we think about salvation or liberation. Um, traditional Buddhism is framed within the idea that the aim of life is to liberate oneself from the cycle of birth and death and achieve moksha, liberation, nirvana in the final sense of no longer being driven by craving that will cause us to be reborn. And that again, that soteriology is not <coughs> exclusive to Buddhism at all. Whether you're a Hindu, a Jain, a Buddhist, your goal is to find liberation from the cycle of birth and death. So again, it's not a Buddhist idea at all. Um, it's a, a, a view. It, it's a view that is derived from a cosmology, a cosmos, um, in which that uh, is how you express your, um, your 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 deepest yearning for meaning and value. So the the the, the great difficulty. Uh, traditional Buddhism has when it confronts modernity is not just about particular doctrines like rebirth. It has to do with the whole cosmos in which traditional Buddhism is embedded. And I think this is, an, this is a, probably the most challenging thing that the Dharma faces in finding a form in modernity is that it has to somehow come to terms with this traditional cosmos. And again, this goes back to Dimitri's point, can we dismantle that whole cosmos and replace it with another one? The cosmos of a scientific uh, naturalism, of a world informed by the uh, social and political values of the European Enlightenment. In other words, modernity, the kind of world we live in. In every instance in the past, when Buddhism went to China, when it went to Tibet, it brought with it the Indian cosmos. For the Tibetans, um, this was, for them, higher culture, with the, inherit, the, 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 the receiving the Indian cosmology. Likewise, Burma, Sri Lanka, Thailand, it was the Indian cosmos that gave them access to what we might call the higher culture. Even in China, um, where they had their own cosmos, the Buddhists still were quite successful in, uh, 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 in uh, explaining and making their Indian cosmos accepted as an integral part of Buddhism. So in Zen, in the other Chinese forms uh, of Buddhism, the Indian cosmology is still intact, but it's not taken quite so seriously as it would be in India itself. But it's still there. It's still integral. So the real question of our time is that can, we, um, can Buddhism survive independently of an Indian cosmological framework? More than just karma rebirth, it's a whole way of seeing the world. And this whole way of seeing the world uh, is very difficult uh, for uh, modern people to uh, accept as uh, intelligible, as somehow um, uh, in some, some, some ways coherent in the light of what 
we currently, how we currently understand the world to be, having emerged from its from a big bang, um, and then given rise to the expanding universe and to the evolution of life, at least on this particular planet, um, the emergence of a human being out of the raw physical stuff of uh, the universe um, and consciousness being effectively a, uh, an emergent uh, property of this physical process. Um, most people today will, will accept that view of the world in just the same way that ancient Indians and Buddhists accepted their cosmos. It wasn't something they had to prove to themselves. It's something that they, they grew up with, they inhabited, that made sense, that was part of their world. So that's the challenge. Uh, and when we talk about a secular dharma, what we're really talking about at one level is a dharma that um, uh, is, 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 expresses itself in uh, a different cosmos, a different sense of meaning, purpose, value, and order. Now, this doesn't mean that we uh, no longer are concerned with the effects of our actions in this life on what will follow after death. Um, traditional Buddhism tends to think of the words karma rebirth as somehow, you know, just two, two aspects of one thing. But actually, they're logically entirely different. Um, the... Uh, the uh, consequences of an action can, can, uh, can happen uh, without needing to posit the continuity of, a, of an entity, um, a spiritual entity, a consciousness of the person who committed them. And just, you know, history tells us this all the time, that uh, the, the actions of a person like Hitler or of Nelson Mandela or of the Buddha, uh, they are continuing to bear fruit today, long after the death uh, of those particular individuals. We don't really see the need for uh, the consequences of action to be tied to the um, persistence of that person reincarnating. That it no longer seems necessary. We can have a deep sense of moral responsibility to future generations uh, with no need whatsoever for us as individuals to, uh, to continue after death. This is hinted at in some Buddhist texts, this, this, this view, but it's certainly not dominant. But to me it's quite satisfactory. I don't find a problem with it. And I think nowadays, uh, particularly when we come to the question of uh, climate change, um, our actions now, uh, both individually and collectively, are creating an environment, a world, that other beings, humans, animals and others, will experience, and they will experience the, you know, the consequences of our acts. So uh, a secular approach to Buddhism is not just about how I can, you know, 
you know, flourish personally in this world. It is just as much about how um, uh, that my existence, our existence, uh, becomes one that assumes uh, a consciousness of and a responsibility for the actions that we commit now and their fruits that will be borne by future generations. So rebirth and karma are to me quite different things. I find it very difficult to understand what rebirth can mean, but I have no difficulty at all uh, with the idea that my actions, my karma, will continue to bear fruit after my death. Uh, there's a text you have in the um, handout uh, called the Sivaka Sutta. Um, I might look at this again later, but maybe it would be worth having a look at it now because it um, it doesn't it it, it 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 points to how the Buddha um, did not explain um, experience as being uh, the result of our karma or exclusively the result of our karma. Um, I think it has a considerable bearing on what we're talking about here. Let me read it out for you. If you've got it, it's called Tasivaka number one, I think. The teacher, the Buddha, was once staying at the squirrel's feeding ground in the bamboo grove at Rajagaha. Then the wanderer Topnot Sivaka approached and exchanged greetings with him. After a pleasant and courteous conversation, he sat down to one side and said, Mr. Gautama, there are some wanderers and priests who voice the opinion and hold the view that whatever a person experiences, be it pleasant, painful or neither, is caused by what was done in the past. What do you say about this? And the Buddha replies, some experiences are caused by bile, some by phlegm, some by wind, some by all three together. Some experiences are caused by the change of seasons, some by poor care, some by sudden assault, and some are the fruit of one's actions. You can know for yourself how such experiences occur, and people in the world agree upon how such experiences occur. Those who believe that all experience is caused by what was done in the past surpass what can be known by themselves and what is accepted as true in the world. Therefore I say that those wanderers and priests are mistaken. Now what's interesting, well there's many things that are interesting in this passage. Firstly, he actually contradicts what has become an official Buddhist doctrine. Namely the experience, in other words, whether we experience something as pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, is the result of our previous actions. Uh, that's how I was taught in my Tibetan training. Uh, that... Uh, the, 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 the experience is the result of past actions, either individual, collective, um, if not in this life, actions in a past life. When you, when you get to someone like Vasubandhu, uh, about the 4th century AD, he, say, he goes much further and says that all the worlds are created by actions, the actions of those who experience those worlds. 
Karma becomes the all-explaining theory for how the world is the way it is. And yet when the Buddha is asked this in this early passage, he says, uh, well, actually, some experiences are caused by our state of health. Bile, phlegm, wind, all three together. These are the classical humors of Indian medicine. In other words, your ill health, physical or mental, is caused by the balance or imbalance of these different humors. Same system of medicine you find with, in ancient Greece as well. Some experiences are caused by the change of seasons. In other words, external conditions, the weather, rain, storms, snow, heat. Some by poor care, you know, things are caused, but you don't take care of yourself pro- properly. Some by assault, in other words, people attack you, animals attack you. And some are the fruit of one's actions. In other words, he doesn't reject that experience can be caused by what you've done in the past, but that is only one of many factors that come into play. And so to claim that everything you experience is the fruit of your karma, um, uh, he rejects. And and interestingly too, he says that, and this is something you can figure out for yourself. You don't need to adopt some kind of metaphysical view. You can examine your own experience, and if you can't figure it out, there are other people in the world uh, who can help you figure it out. So it's a very empirical approach. And it's this kind of empirical approach that really stands out in contrast to the widespread um, views of Indian, traditional Indian cosmological thought. The chances that this passage are original are very high for the simple reason that subsequent Buddhist uh, teachers and scholars would not have had any interest in adding it later. This is, a, this is a, an argument used in biblical studies uh, to ascertain um, the reliability of a passage being attributed to Jesus. It's called the criterion of difference. If a text um, in the canon um, is, contradicts an orthodox view, in other words, is different from the received view of the religion, it's likely to be early. This sort of makes sense. It makes sense. A text is either early, original, or it came along later. You only have those two options. The criterion of difference um, from orthodoxy suggests earliness. And this is one of the ways where we can approach the early canon and, as it were, develop an ear for those texts that jar with what became orthodox Buddhist belief. And this view, I think, is far more in keeping, far more compatible with our understanding of how our actions bear fruits, um, but also many other factors uh, play a role in the kind of experiences we have as human beings. Okay, I'm going to stop here. Um, I hope this has been uh, helpful. Um, but I think it does raise some um, 
some rather central questions that are not, I admit, easy to answer. Uh, we have still, um, we have another hour actually. Um, let's first of all just uh, open this up for any comments or questions you may have. And I'd like to conclude the evening with a, a short period of meditation. Oh, yeah. How do I do that? Press the red button? Yeah, just press the red button. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.